The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. The book of Hebrews. Today we start a new nine-week series in the book of Hebrews that we're calling Better Than. Better Than. And really the main aim for this Better Than series is to help us live out the theme for the year. And what has that been? It's been to, come on, should roll off each tongue, remain in Christ. Remember, remain in Christ. And so we do that, remain in Christ, by joyfully surrendering our hearts to Christ in our everyday lives. That's what it means to be kind of remaining in Jesus, to to abide in Him. And so this is why we're going to camp out in the book of Hebrews, because it's largely about that theme. It's largely about staying close to Jesus. It's largely about sticking near to Him, abiding in Him, especially when we go through hard times, as we're going to see as we move through this series. And so with the theme, the remain theme as the backdrop, we're going to jump in at chapter 1. Great place to start when you start a new series in the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to read down to verse 4. Now, I'm only going to focus on the first three verses. Hill is going to pick up from verse 4 next week. And, and the, it's kind of a big section. Is it verse 18 of chapter 2? Is that right? So if you want to read ahead, um, you can do that, verse 4 through to verse 18 of chapter 2. But we're going to just focus our attention on these three verses, 1 through 3. And don't be fooled, this is a small passage, but this passage is endlessly rich. And God has used this passage many, many times in my life to encourage me and to strengthen me. And so here we go, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Now, verse 3, throughout the rest of the book, the subject becomes the Son. Verse 1 and 2, the subject is is God the Father, but now there's a shift. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, I'm eager to unpack this endlessly rich, endlessly inspiring passage with you in just a moment. But before we come to the passage, I thought it would be helpful and wise to give you a quick helicopter view of the book of Hebrews. Um, Just so that we can grasp it a little better since we're going to spend the next nine weeks in the book. One writer by the name of Warren Wiersbe, he's written a tiny, helpful commentary on the book of Hebrews, and he summarizes the whole book under the following four words. Now, just a word of warning, this is alliteration overload, okay? All right, and I know I use alliteration a lot, and you all know that, and it's like, okay, here comes the alliteration. Well, here comes the alliteration, but don't blame me, blame Warren Wiersbe, right? Because these are his four words. Here's the first one. Four E words, exhortation. That's the first one, exhortation. Of course, exhortation means what? It means to come alongside someone and spur them on, to encourage them. In fact, our author calls this piece of writing in chapter 13, verse 22, a word of exhortation. 
And so really the book of Hebrews functions like a Leighton Hewitt fist pump. You know, Leighton Hewitt, got the kind of, come on, come on. Well, it's like that when you read the book of Hebrews. It's like, come on, don't drift away from Jesus, Hebrews 2.2. 2. It's like, come on, hold on to Jesus, Hebrews 3.6. It's, it's come on. Don't, um, don't harden your hearts against Jesus, Hebrews 3.8, Hebrews 3.15, Hebrews 4.7. It's, it's come on, don't shrink back into unbelief or fear, Hebrews 10.38. And so it's a fist pump kind of book. You just read it and it's, it's kind of always on the edge of your seat, being exhorted, encouraged to stay close to Jesus. The second E, it's also a book of examination. Examination, what do I mean? Well, pretty much every time I read the book of Hebrews, I'm challenged to consider whether I'm truly living for Jesus or not. It just has that effect on you, this book. It's almost like there's this big question that flies over this book. And the question is, what are you truly living for? Or you could pose the question differently. It's, what what do you truly love in life? Is it Jesus Do you really live for Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? Do you love what Jesus loves, namely his people? Do you love his people Uh, so much so to spend time with his people, encouraging his people? Or or do you love Jesus so much so that you love what he loves, namely his kingdom? Are you about advancing his gospel in the world so much so that you're happy to forego pleasure and comfort to see this gospel go out to the ends of the earth? It's a challenging book. It's a book of examination. So it's a book of what? Exhortation. It's a book of examination. And thirdly, and I love this, it's a book of expectation, meaning Hebrews is a future-focused book. It's a future-oriented book. Our author knew the profound connection between persistence in the Christian life, fruitfulness in the Christian life, and hope. They are tied together. If you want to endure faithful to the end, you've got to be a heavenly-minded person, a heavenly-minded Christian. They are linked together. It was C.S. Lewis who said that too many Christians are just too earthly-minded, and because of that, they are no earthly good. That's what he said. In other words, we need to get into the book of Hebrews because this book comes alongside us. And yes, it says, come on, come on, the whole Leighton Hewitt thing. But it also says, look ahead. Get your eyes off your current situations and circumstances and place them squarely on Jesus Christ. Look ahead, Hebrews 9, 28. Why? Because he's coming. So anticipate his coming. And what is he going to bring when he comes? Well, Hebrews 13, the city of God, the heavenly country. He's going to bring that with him. And so when we look ahead, we'll be more like Moses who looked ahead, Hebrews 11. And because of that, he found the courage and the ability to say no to the treasures of Egypt and yes to, listen to this, suffering and service. Why? He had his eyes ahead. He was looking ahead to Christ and his reward in glory. And in comparison, that made the Egyptian dream look like filth and dirt. It's a book of expectation. So exhortation, examination, expectation. And, and, and third, uh, fourthly, and this will come to no surprise, it's a book of elevation or exaltation. That is, church, this book is not about you. <laughs> and that's good news. 
Because if it's about us, we are in big trouble. It's about Christ. It's about the Son of God. It, it reveals that he's better than, hence the title of this series. He's better than. This book functions like a kaleidoscope. How many of you had a kaleidoscope as a kid? Hands up. Some of you are like, mm, what's a kaleidoscope? It's funny, I had a conversation with someone the other day. They don't come to church. And I said, oh, do you know what a kaleidoscope is? And this person said to me, yeah, yeah, I know what a kaleidoscope is. My, my daughter, when she was three, she had some health issues, and they took a kaleidoscope, and they, you know, <laughs> and, and they kind of checked her out. And I was like, well, I, I think we're talking about different scopes here. I was like, That's not a kaleidoscope. Hey, the picture. That's a kaleidoscope. You know, as a kid, you got that kaleidoscope. It's like a miniature uh, telescope. And inside it, there are colored beads and mirrors. And when you take your kaleidoscope, the, 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 the light kind of filters through the front lens and it hits all the mirrors and you see these images. But the, the ingenious thing about kaleidoscopes is that you can twist them. Remember as a kid, it's like, wow. And each time you turn your kaleidoscope, you get this dazzling picture, this pattern. And then you turn it, go back to the other one. And you go, wow, there's another picture. And you just turn, turn, turn until you get to. <laughs> You're a good man. He's doing such a good job back there. Because I only gave him two photos. So he's just got to go like this. And, hey, whoa, whoa, that's it. And then when, you, when you've gone all the way round with your kaleidoscope, what do you do? Well, you do this. You shake it up and all the beads kind of jumble around. <laughs> Stop it, all right? You're distracting me. You're making it way too fun. Church is not meant to be fun, all right? <laughs> and you look through it and you go, wow, all the beads are in different kind of positions. And it's just another beautiful pattern. So listen, Hebrews is the kaleidoscope. You look through the lens of this book and you see the dazzling beauty of Jesus Christ. And then you turn the kaleidoscope of this book and you go, wow, Jesus is better than Moses. And then you turn the page and go, wow, Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. You go, wow, Jesus is better than the priesthood. And wow, wow, it's like the kaleidoscope. And I pray, we pray as a church, that as we look through this lens, we'll just be dazzled by the wonder and the splendor of the one who is better than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a book of exhortation. It's a book all about him. And I guess this is a good transition to our passage because our passage, these verses that we've just read out, they're all about him. They're all about how wonderful he is. In particular, the first two verses, about how he is God's ultimate revelation. He's the superior revealer. That he is the ultimate disclosure, self-disclosure of Almighty God. That's what we're told in the first two verses. That in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, forefathers, through the prophets in many different ways. And really, the language there is that the Old Testament revelation, it was good, but it was incomplete. Until the coming of the Son, verse 2. Because now in him, Jesus, we see God more clearly and so to help us realize that Jesus is the superior revealer of God, he gives us seven affirmations or seven facts about the Son of God. And we're only going to look at the six of them, and I think he'll might pick up on the seventh one next week. So six affirmations to help us see that Jesus is the superior, superior revealer of God. Are you ready? That, that first bit was quick, and this is going to be quick too, right? So here we go. Number one, the first affirmation. 
Jesus is God's appointed heir. Now, I'm not being very imaginative. I've just taken it straight from the text. Verse 2, it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of, notice, all things. Now, it's very clear that our writer here is alluding to one of the great messianic psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 2. That psalm, you get this conversation between God and this messianic figure whom he calls his son. He calls him son twice in the psalm. And so clearly, our author is alluding to that psalm. In that psalm, God makes this profound promise to this messianic figure. He says, you ask me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. But notice something here in our text. He extends that promise, not only to include the nations of this world, the possessions, earthly possessions, but what? All things. And the all things is the world to come. In, in Hebrews 2.5, we read about all things being the world to come, meaning a renewed cosmos, this whole renewed uh, universe that's going to be free from corruption and defilement and sin and disease and brokenness and chaos and darkness. The Son of God as the great heir is set to gain the whole lot as the Messiah. And here's the remarkable thing. I find this truly humbling and really delightful. Jesus, as the heir, is not going to be greedy with his estate. He's not going to say, get your own universe, you know, this is mine. He's going to share it with us. One of my favorite verses in this book is Hebrews 2.11. That verse, we read, he's not ashamed to call us, what? Brothers and sisters. What is that? He's thrilled to bits to have you and me as his younger siblings. In other words, he's proud to have us as a part of his family. And you know what? He is... Eager, I think, with expectation and, and, in, and, and pleasure uh, in, in, in the sense that he's going to share this renewed cosmos with us. And, of course, the implication is, hey, if you miss out in this life, it's okay. If this life is just riddled with misery and pain for you, it's okay because you will not miss out there. He will see to that. Because when he comes, he's going to inherit the whole lot and you're going to share it with him. Why? Because we are co-heirs with Christ, we're told in Romans 8 and in the book of Galatians as well. So this is the first thing that we're told about this superior revealer. He is God's appointed heir. Number two, second affirmation. He is also God's agent of creation. Verse two again. He spoke to us by his son in the last days, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom... He also made the universe. Now, this is staggering. I want you to see how he moves from eternity future to eternity past. He's just told us about Jesus' future destiny. He's set to gain the universe, this renewed cosmos, to, to con- helping us to consider what Jesus was doing before the cosmos was. He, as God's agent, brought the whole thing into being. The whole universe, material, immaterial universe, into reality. He breathed it into motion. This is is staggering. Now, a bit of a challenge for you this morning. I want you to try and wrap your heads around this. You won't be able to, but try. Was that you, Grace? Was there someone someone to chuckle like, as if to say, yeah, I'll show you. I'll show you. We'll see. We'll see. How many scientists in the room this morning? Kind of. 
I know there's some, yeah, okay, well, some scientists suggest that our observable universe, note that word, observable, right? They, I don't think they know how really big it is, but the observable universe is approximately 93 billion light years in diameter. All right, so, so if, you, if there is an edge to the universe from one edge to the other edge, that's, that's 93 billion light years. Now, I know if some of you, it's like it's not doing anything for you at all. It's like, what's the light year anyhow? So let me put it this way. In one year... Light travels at, um, travels, sorry, 10 trillion kilometers in one year. That's one light year. That's how fast light is. There's some serious frequent flyer points there. Right? There's a lot of kilometers. 10 trillion kilometers. That's 6 trillion miles. One year, that's how far light travels. However, our universe is not one light year in diameter. It is 93 billion times 10 trillion kilometers in diameter. See, I told you, right? And that person that scoffed, now I'm scoffing, all right? It's like, we're told that God, through the agency and the instrumentality of his son, brought it into being. What's the implication? Well, there's many, but I just want to allude to one. If Christ was able to subdue the darkness in the beginning, he's able to carry you in your darkest moments. He breathed life into light, into darkness, into chaos. And so what makes us think that he's not able to carry us in the midst of despair? Oh, he's able. More than that, he's willing. Because he is our saviour. who's eager to share the universe with us, this renewed cosmos. So that should stir us. It should encourage us. And so that's the second, the second thing. Jesus, as God's supreme revealer, is God's agent of creation. Who's feeling encouraged? Great. That's good news. Number three, third affirmation. Jesus is also God's, I'm looking at the screen, personified glory. Now, it's a bit wordy, but uh, stay with me. Uh, what does this mean? Again, verse 3 says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now, this is staggering, but, but what is he talking about, really? What does, he, what does he mean? What does he want us to see? Well, Old Testament believers would have understood immediately what he meant. Because the glory of God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, always was about the manifest presence of God. It was God showcasing himself. It was God going public. When God went public, it was his glory being seen and experienced. And so, for example, in Exodus 24, God meets Moses on Mount Sinai, and we're told, quote, that the glory of the Lord settled upon the mountain. Now, what's going on there? Well, it's God saying, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to reveal my character to you, to my, my life to you. I'm going to give you these laws to express my heart for the nation, my love for the nation. I want you to stay in my boundaries because I care for you. It's not that I want to restrict your life. No, I want you to experience abundant life. So, so here is my law for you to receive and to obey. He was expressing himself there, yeah? revealing himself, disclosing his reality, his character. It was his glory going public. Later on in 1 Samuel chapter 4, God, after warning the nation again and again and again not to disobey him, break his law, um, they were led, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was captured and it was shipped off. And as it was leaving the camp, the people wept bitterly 
and they said, quote, the glory has departed. What were they saying? They were saying, God's left us because of our evil, because of our waywardness, because of our rebellion and idolatry. He's, he's leaving us. God's glory represents his being, his manifest presence, his character going public. And so when our author says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, Jesus is the ultimate expression of the presence of God, the character of God, the love of God, the warmth of God. And so just like the, the, uh, the sun, the radiance of the sun is the sunlight, that light emanates from the sun, well, the eminence of God is the Son of God. It's Him, which means this, implication. And we're doing this now because it's winter, all right? When you're outside and it's cold, what do you do? You make a beeline for the sunlight, right, for the sun rays. It's cold in the shadows. It's cold in the shade. And, and to experience the warmth of the sun, you've got to get into the light of the sun. Well, for us to experience the warmth of God, the warmth of his presence, his beauty, his life, his power, we need to experience the light of the Son of God. We need to be in his presence. We need to remain in him. And then we encounter the, risen, the, the glorious living God. Yeah? So that's, that's the third affirmation. He is the personification of, of God's glory, um, the radiance of his glory. Number, number four, affirmation number four. Jesus is... God's perfect revelation. Now, this is connected, but it's, there's a subtle difference here. In verse 3, again, we read that he is the exact, listen, exact representation of his being. Now, what's the key word there? Exact. In other words, Jesus is not an imitation. If he was, he would be a false god. He's the exact representation of God. Now, you may remember this song in the mid-90s. Who was alive in the mid-90s? A lot of some of you weren't. There was a well-known song, and it was put out by a female music artist by the name of Joan Osborne. And this, you remember it? It was called One of Us. And I remember the song. I'm not going to sing it for you. All right, maybe one line. Maybe one line. Okay. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I'm terrible. If God was one of us. Yeah. I need Luke to jump up and be on. No, 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 I'm on my own, I'm on my own. And, and the reason why I remember the song is because the girl I liked in high school, that was her favorite song. And that's what you do, isn't it? Sorry, Nat. Um, I'm so glad I'm married to you. I don't know what she's doing now, but I still remember her name. Was, her name was Lara. And, and she loved... Jesus. I need help. I need help. Um, she loved the song, so I love the song. And in the song, she poses this profound theological question. I don't even know if she was aware that she was posing a profound theological question. And the question is, if God had a face, and you could just picture her with her acoustic guitar, if God had a face, what would he look like? And back then, I didn't have a clue. I'm like, that's news to me. God has a face. I, mean, I didn't know. I just cared about the song because this girl cared about the song. But of course, the answer is found right here, squarely in our text. He is the exact representation of his being. In other words, God does have a face, and his face is the face of Christ. So you want to see God, you've got to look into the eyes of Jesus. And of course, the implication for some of you, maybe you're 
investigating Christianity, you're on a journey of faith. Uh, if you want to know God, if you want to experience God, not only in your head, but with your heart, really, really encounter God, then you've got to encounter Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? How do you encounter him? Well, let me suggest this. Grab one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is probably the best place to start because the shortest Gospel it's action-packed, and it's all about Jesus. And so when you read about Jesus, you're reading about God because he's the exact representation of, of God. When you hear him teach, you hear, you're hearing God teach. When you, when you see him interact with broken, needy people, caring for lepers and the widows and the orphans, you're seeing God there caring for the widows and the orphans and the estranged. When, when you see Jesus die on the cross, you're seeing him die as God dying for you. That's the extent of it. Love. That's why we can sing, you know, you're never going to let us down, never going to let us down, because he never let go of the cross. That's how we know that he's good, that he's for you and for us. And so if you want to encounter God, you've got to go to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the exact representation of his being. Affirmation number five. Jesus is God's, I love this, cosmic sustainer. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that this passage has encouraged me numerous times, and it's because of this reality, that he upholds the universe. What does our text say? He says he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, this is mind-boggling. This is mind-blowing. All right, It's Jesus' powerful word that is the glue that holds this universe, this cosmos that is approximately 93 billion times 10 trillion kilometers in diameter together. Can you get your head around that? No, neither can I. It's his word that fuels the whole thing, that keeps all the atoms and the molecules together, and he keeps everything material working well. Church, I cannot keep a pot plant alive. Yeah? I mean, some people, not you, but some have bought Nat and I pot plants. We put them in, we're like, okay, we're going to look after this, this one, and we drown it. We're like, okay, it needs water. We just put too much water in. Or, okay, we're not going to put water in, and then it ends up dying of thirst. Don't buy me a pot plant. Buy me a Kurong voucher or something like that. I'll kind of use that. <laughs> but Jesus keeps the whole universe alive. But the word of his power, and listen, the implication is, if he's over as the messianic, authoritative one over the whole cosmos, keeping it running, keeping it in motion, then surely he is over humanity too. And he's, he's controlling humanity, and he's bringing humanity to its appointed end. And what is that appointed end? In a word, anyone? Be brave. We're in church. It's okay. Anyone? In a word. Not Hillary. He knows the answer. Huh? You heard me last night, I think so. Jesus is bringing it to the point that Jesus, yeah, that's good. Very clever. It's a different J word. It's judgment. It's judgment. And a lot of it, I just heard, does go, ooh, like that. It's because in our English vernacular, judgment pretty much only has negative connotations attached to it, right? It's like judgment, ooh, doom and gloom. Well, there is going to be a bit of that for those on the wrong side of God. But, but, but judgment is actually a really positive word in the Bible, in Scripture. It's, 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 it's Christ, when he comes, making everything sad come untrue. 
It's Jesus making everything bad answerable to his authority, to his justice. It's, it's in other words, Jesus ushering in his kingdom of righteousness. That's perfect equality and justice. His kingdom of peace, which is shalom in every aspect of our being, psychological, spiritual, physical, emotional well-being. He's going to bring that, usher that in. And because of that, it's a kingdom of joy. Because when you have pure justice and perfect peace, what's the result? Ecstatic joy. That's what he's going to bring. And that's what he's going to usher in. And so the whole of human history is, 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 is leading up to that point, that decisive moment when the king returns, the one who sits above the earth, sits above the universe. He's going to bring judgment. And I pray, this is a serious note, I do pray that we'll all be found on the right side, that we'll be known by him, that we would be found worshipping him, not perfectly. Who does? but sincerely. Yeah? As I've said many times, it's not about perfection, it's about direction. It's about the direction of your heart. Is the direction of your heart Christward? There's deviations, there's faults, there's mistakes. <clears throat> Come and live with me, you know, for a moment, for a month, and you'll see all my deviations. But oh, I pray that my heart will be found in that direction as with yours too. Yeah? So let's be found trusting in the Savior. Lastly, What's going to help us actually do just that? What's going to help us trusting him, depend on him, lean on him? Well, it's the last sixth affirmation here. It's Jesus as God's unique sacrifice. He is God's unique sacrifice. Again, verse 3. He says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Purification. Now, again, this is amazing. Because the author takes us to, from considering what Jesus' hands are currently doing, sustaining the universe, to help us see what Jesus' hands did and achieved on the cross. So he moves from the cosmos back to the cross. And what was he doing? Well, we're told he was doing something. He was providing something for us, for humanity, and that was purification for sins. Now, you all know what purification is. All of us know what purification is. Right? It's when you get something dirty, like your dirty clothes, and you wash them. And then you put them out, and they dry, and you put them on. It's fresh. They're clean. All right? Well, that's, that's, that's what purification is. And yet Jesus had to do that for our hearts because sin defiles. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, okay, he's talking about sin. What's, what's sin? Uh, well, it is breaking God's laws, but it's so much more than that. Sin is loving things more than God. It's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. And we all do that at times. We take a good thing like work. Is work good? Yes, it's a gift from God. But sometimes we can make work an ultimate thing. We can base our security, our identity, our approval in our work. And it becomes a bad thing, a toxic thing. Um, I'm just seeing some commotion in the congregation about the whole work thing. And but anyhow, uh, moving on. Also, um, I've mentioned work. Family. Family. A lot of people can make family their ultimate good, their ultimate end. And, and, and it can lead, it often does lead to misery and pain. Because, you know, if you make your children or your family God... When your kids go up, grow up, often what happens if they've been put under that pressure, because you always put pressure on your God, they end up just kind of 
ignoring the parent. You know, they're kind of just not really wanting to do life with you. And I've spoken to parents. I know this is true because they put their emphasis, their whole life, their sense of security and identity in their children. It's become an idol. And, and that is what sin is ultimately. It's placing a good thing above God. And that defiles, you see. That's why we needed cleansing, purification, because sin makes us unfit for the presence of this almighty God because sin is high treason against God. And so Jesus came from eternity to be on that Roman tree, that cross, to deal with our muck, to deal with our impurity, to deal with our dirt and our filth. You know, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he said the cross is like the cosmic sewerage. And I don't know whether you've ever seen the cross that way. But what you're seeing there, when you look at Jesus on the cross, he is taking the sewerage of human sin upon himself. All the filth caused by idolatry. And why? To purify. And notice what he goes on to say. He is now seated, meaning he only had to do it once. I mean, he continuously upholds the universe, but he only had to go to the cross once to provide purification for our sins. And that he did gladly, that he did sacrificially, that he did voluntarily and willingly to reconcile you and me to his Father so that now we can come boldly into his warmth, into his presence, being clean, being whole. That should cause us to sing. And so this is the confidence. This is how we know we can trust in Christ, that he's never going to let us go, that he is good, that every fiber of his being is good because he didn't let go of the cross. He held on to it. He wasn't selfish. He didn't call down angels to help him. He was not self-centered. He was living, dying for you to purify you and to purify me so that we could know God for all eternity and share in this future glory, this future universe that's going to be fully restored. Amen? Wow. How about we pause for a moment as Luke strums away? Hopefully not Joan Osborne's song. But as we reflect on the wonder and the beauty of Jesus, as we look through, as we've been looking through this kaleidoscope today, this superior revealer, oh Lord, maybe there was one affirmation, one facet of Christ's character being that we touched on that really spoke to you. And if if that's the case, I, I want you to just take a minute just to reflect on that and to maybe pray that into your heart. I'm just going to give you a moment.